0: Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 7. Let's pray together. Father, we do rejoice in you. We thank you for who you are, that your character is consistent, that you're gracious and long-suffering, truthful, that you're present in our lives. You're Emmanuel, God with us. We just want to slow down and wait upon you, allow you to speak to our hearts. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit and lead us and guide us in truth. And we love you in Jesus' name, amen. I was working on a sermon title for tonight and decided to talk with uh, some of the guys here on staff. And this is what we came up with. Sink or float, did you build a boat? We thought that was a little bit cheesy, so we ended up going with judgment and uh, restoration. In chapter 7, we're going to see God's judgment on the children of Israel. Israel, not just the children of Israel, but throughout the whole world, a worldwide flood uh, that God gives. The nation of Israel is not even birthed yet, so this is the worldwide flood. And then chapter 8, God's restoration through Noah and his family. A friend sent me this quote uh, this week. Uh, He read it at Jimmy John's while eating a sandwich, but it does pertain to Noah, Never be afraid to try something new. Remember that a lone amateur built the ark. A large group of professionals built the Titanic. There you have it. Verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all of your household, because I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. All of the preparation that has come to this point where Noah and his family, they've built the ark, and now God says it's time. You need to come into the ark. The flood is coming. Judgment is coming. The ark ultimately points to Christ. We saw last week in chapter 6, the covenant that came with the ark. God says, here's this boat that I want you to build, but my commitment to you is of provision and protection. And ultimately, our provision is found in Jesus Christ. And all who come to Christ through faith, that come and abide in Christ uh, through faith, find refuge in him. And the invitation of Christ in Matthew eleven twenty eight is come all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you'll find rest for your souls. So now they come into the ark, says, you shall take with you seven, each of every clean animal, a male and his female, Two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. Why are they to bring seven of the clean animals? Because the clean animals would be used for sacrifice in worship. So there would be more of those needed uh, upon the ark and then the restoration that would take afterwards. And then of the others, the unclean, two of every kind, male and a female. God is making sure that there's everything necessary that life is gonna continue after the flood. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. So God says seven days and the flood is going to come. In football, we do have the two-minute warning, Here, God gives the seven-day warning. He says, in seven days, I'm going to send the flood. And the flood's going to come, and it's going to destroy all living creatures for 40 days and 40 nights. If you weren't with us last week, chapter 6 is so important because we see why God is judging the world. Because of sexual perversion that had taken place, violence. Every thought of man was evil. So God responds and says that he was bringing judgment upon everyone except for Noah and his family. The emphasis at the end of verse 4 is God says, from the face of the earth, all living things that I have made. God created all of mankind. Mankind is accountable to him, so it's God's place if he chooses or desires to bring judgment and justice. In verse 5 and Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth God lifts up Noah as an example of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 without faith it's impossible to please God we think of all the things that would please God but it's to believe in him it's to trust in him and when we do believe and trust in him it results in our lives and how we live And out of Noah's faith, he obeyed. Because he believed God, he believed God's word that God was gonna bring this flood, that, that he needed to build an ark. He responded with all of this hard work of obedience. He did all that the Lord commanded him to do. What a great testimony from Noah's life. I bet he's really glad he obeyed, don't you? He did what God asked him to do, This boat is built, he's ready, and he's prepared for judgment. We're never going to regret obedience to the Lord. Sometimes it feels that way, it feels long, it feels difficult, but we're never going to regret obeying the Lord. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. God's hand is at work to cause all of these animals to come together, to come to Noah, to go on the ark in an orderly fashion. The Lord is definitely orchestrating this. We see even today some amazing feats of migration that happens in the animal kingdom every year. This was a unique migration to bring two of every kind to get onto the ark to prepare uh, for this judgment. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. What would these seven days be like for Noah and his family? Waiting, waiting, knowing that there was judgment coming in seven days. Okay, it's day six, it's day four, it's day three, here it comes. Okay, this is the seventh day. God's going to bring his judgment. I'm sure there was a lot of emotion and sleepless nights, and the flood begins. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, and on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. This is a notable day for sure. And God notes it, He writes it down, and He says, Of Noah's life is the 600th year of his life. In the second month, the 17th day, then the fountains of the deep break open. The waters from underneath the earth break open. And you begin to see all of this massive torrents of water coming from beneath. But also the windows of heaven open. So you have water coming up from underneath the earth and also from up above from the heavens verse 12, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So this happens for 40 days and for 40 nights. If you study the scriptures, you may have noticed that 40 is used a lot uh, in scripture. We see Moses on Mount Sinai seeking the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. The spies are sent into the land, the promised land, the future promised land, and that first spy mission was 40 days. We see Jesus being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The 40 oftentimes was a time of purification before God was doing something new. And so it's significant here that God chooses to use 40 days and 40 nights for the time of the flood. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And so what's interesting here is the emphasis upon every kind. Because you see with dogs, inside of dogs, you've got the DNA and the gene pool that's able then to produce all different types of breeds of dogs, but they're still dogs, right, after its kind. and So you have these animals coming to the ark then that could procreate into the different varieties inside of of their kind. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two of all flesh, which is the breath of. Of life. All that encompasses life. Everything that is needed for life to continue is there on the ark. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. What's the significance of this? Why does God shut the door? Why does Noah and his family not have to shut the door? Because it's not Noah or his family that shuts the door for salvation upon anyone God is the one that ultimately shuts the door and says now there's no longer an opportunity for salvation there's judgment that is coming upon you and God is the one who will shut the door as well on individuals but we never shut the door on them Ultimately, that's between them and the Lord, and if they reject Christ through their whole entire lives, there does come to that moment where God says, okay, I've confirmed your decision. You've said no to me, and the door is closed. It's now time for you to receive judgment. Thankfully, God is so patient, isn't he? He's so long-suffering. He doesn't desire for any to perish. He's pleading with the hearts of, of men and women. This is a very horrific sight and a horrific moment Uh, for Noah and his family. They know what's going to take place. They know that the flood is going to destroy all human creatures. And and now I'm sure people are flocking to the ark, pounding upon the door, wanting in. But it is uh, too late. Noah and his family, his sons, their wives, his wife they had extended family, they had friends, they, they had acquaintances. Noah's an old man, 600 years old. Imagine all the people you would know in a 600-year period of time. And knowing that God's judgment would come, but also the weight of that. And today still, isn't God's judgment weighty? Like we know that God's justice is needed, and God's justice is necessary, and that at someday this earth is going to melt away in god's judgment that people reject christ experience hell and eternal separation from god but there's a weight to that there's there's something to that that should stop us and slow us down and go wow lord help me to have a heart for people and a heart for people that don't know you in verse 16 so those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as god Had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now the flood was on the earth forty days, the waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth. And all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. So what a feeling for Noah and his family. All of a sudden, the ark's got enough water underneath it where it lifts up and it's floating. And you're going up and up and up and up, and eventually you're floating above the mountains. Now it's clear from our passage that this is a worldwide flood. All living creatures die. It's very clear in these verses that we read that the whole earth is covered, that all mountain ranges are covered by 15 cubits, which is roughly 21 and a half feet. Now, it seems to be that the flood is largely contested, that many people don't believe in a worldwide flood. Now, let me remind you that this is part of the scriptures. And if we start picking and choosing of what we believe in the scriptures, we find ourselves in a really dangerous place, don't we? So I don't believe in the flood, but I believe Jesus died for my sins. It doesn't work that way. You either take all of it, or you don't. When you get married, you you don't just take part of your spouse, right? You take your whole spouse. It all comes together. And if you didn't realize it, it also comes with your in-laws. It's a little bit of free advice right there, right? So when it comes to the scriptures and a belief in God, you can't just take the word of God and say, well, I just like the parts of it that make me comfortable. And is there evidence for a wo- worldwide flood? I think there is, I think there's a lot of evidence. One is that most ancient cultures do have their own story of a worldwide flood. In their history, they'll, they'll tell you of, yes, this, this happened, describing a, a worldwide flood. This is an article from a website called gotquestions.org. If you're ever looking for biblical questions, it's a good resource. And I read, it says, An evidence for the flood is a physical evidence found on the earth's surface. For example, 75% of the earth's land surface is comprised of sediment rock, rock that was washed away, dissolved in fluid, and redeposited elsewhere. Fossils are found in many of these sedimentary layers. It is common to find massive fossil graveyards consisting of jumbled, smashed, and contorted fossil remains that give the appearance of a large number of animals destroyed simultaneously by an incredible force. So the fossil record really points to a worldwide flood. We found fossils, marine fossils, on the top of mountain ranges including the Himalayas. What in the world are marine fossils doing on the top of the Himalayas? You can only explain that through the worldwide flood. I'm just beginning to learn how the Grand Canyon really points to a worldwide flood. Even secular geologists say this could not have simply been carved out by the Colorado River. So we look at the evidence and we go, the evidence points to a worldwide flood. But why does a Christ rejecting world want to deny the flood? Because if you deny the flood, you're denying God's judgment. I mean, it's a lot more comfortable for us to think, well, God never judged the earth, and there's not future judgment to come. In verse 21 And all flesh died and moved on the earth birds and cattle and beasts, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man. So, very clear. It's worldwide. And in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained. And ultimately, God's going to bring judgment again. In Second Peter 3, verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? God's never going to destroy the earth again through a flood, but there will become a day where all of this earth is going to melt away with a fervent heat. What mattered to Noah at this point in the journey that they're upon the ark? It was his relationship with God. It was his obedience to God. It was his family. In light of the fact that everything's going to be burned up, what really matters? That's the challenge that Second Peter gives to us. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. It's amazing in chapters 7 and 8 how God chronicles the time. He says, okay, there's seven days of warning. Then there's 40 days where the flood takes place. And then the waters sat upon the earth for 150 days. There's so much water upon the earth that if it's not for God sending a wind to dry out the earth, the earth wasn't going to dry. And so we'll see God's timetable continue in chapter 8. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. The word remember means to name or to mention. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, puts it this way. When God remembered Abraham, he saved Lot. When he remembered Rachel, she conceived God's remembering always implies his movement towards the object. Don't you like that? When God remembers, it's his movement towards the object, towards the person. God remembered Rebekah and she conceived. God remembered Abraham, what was on his heart, and it resulted in salvation for Lot. And here, God remembers Noah. Then God remembered Noah. Some translations put it this way, but God remembered Noah. God chooses to ravine. Chapter seven is deconstruction, decreation. And then chapter eight is recreation or God's restoration. God could have wiped everyone out, including Noah, but he chooses to save Noah and his family and these animals on the ark so that God could restore that ultimately would lead to Christ coming and dying for our sins. God sends this wind on the earth to dry out the earth. In verse 2, the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded continually from the earth, and the end of the earth at the end of the 150 days, the water decreased. So we have 150 days of the waters receding. In verse four, then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. Another notable day. Floating, 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 floating. All of a sudden, you hit the mountain, and you're no longer floating. I don't know if you've ever been on a boat for a period of time. Even a, a day will do it. When you get off the boat, you're like, I'm still feeling like I'm on the boat. That must have gone on for Noah and his family for quite a while. They probably felt some movement for, for quite a while. The big question is, where is the ark today? Everybody wants to find the ark. It says, on the mountains of Ararat, which is thought to be in the Turkey region. But ultimately, God has not allowed us to find the ark. Why? Because if we did find the ark, we would probably get stumbled by it and put our focus on the boat that did happen to float instead upon the Lord, wouldn't we? We would make the object our, our worship. verse 5, and the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. We know that the ark had a window as they're watching this take place. They're like, Ham, Shem, Japheth, your wives, look, there's land, there's hope. God's drying things out. There's a future for us. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made, then he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. So the raven goes and flies and continues flying until the earth is dried out enough for him to land. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. And she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth." So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. So the dove goes out, can't find a resting place, and ends up back on the ark. No detail is wasted in scripture. What does the dove represent throughout scripture? The Holy Spirit. When Jesus was baptized, the spirit descended on him like a dove. This ultimately is a picture of the Holy Spirit that's hovering, looking for a resting place. The Spirit wants to reside in the hearts of men and women who will open up their hearts to him. And as Noah extended out his hand, as we extend out our hearts and say, Holy Spirit, I desire for you to have a home in my heart. Be at home in me. I want to be filled and led by the Holy Spirit. When we think of God's restoration, we see the damage of sin, And the restoration takes place through the work of the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're not meant to be able to live out this Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. It's too hard. It's too difficult. It's impossible. How do we be a witness of Jesus Christ apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit? Has the Holy Spirit found a comfortable residence inside of us? In verse 10, And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove Out from the ark. I think that this must have been a really difficult time as well for Noah and his family. What's the most miserable part of an airplane flight? It's after you land and you're taxiing and you're waiting those last few moments to get off the stinking plane, right? And while you're in the air, you're kind of fine with it, but now you touch down and that magic device in your pocket now again works. It goes off of airplane mode and lets you know the people that you want to see, the business commitment that you need to get to, the reason while you're traveling, and you can just feel the antsiness. I think the temperature rises about five degrees, and then the animals begin to pray as soon as they hit the light to unfasten the seatbelt. And then there's also, always those feisty evildoers <laughs> That take their seat belt off before the light goes off. That's usually me. I'd try to do a quiet slip this way. And you see a little bit of pole position. Elbows start going out. I'm going to get my bag and get my position and get all the way through, right? Because it's that moment of I can actually get off this plane. Imagine if you've been on the ark for a, over a year's period of time and, and now it's getting close. Not to mention you're on there with stinky animals, Sometimes the plane flight feels that way too, right? Man, it's really starting to smell inside of here. But the elephant is probably not too pleasant by this point in the journey. At first, you're like, wow, these two elephants, amazing. I'm right up close and and personal. I've always wanted to be a zookeeper. And by the end of this, you're like, man, elephant, you stink. Like, you have horse poop on steroids, right? I mean, they're ready to get off of of this ark. They're all family too, imagine that. And they all got their wives and I'm sure they're sick of their mother-in-law and their sister-in-law and their dad and the whole thing. They're just like, get me out of here. I'm just stressed now, verse 11. (laughs) Then the dove came to him in the evening and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth and Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth, encouraging news for sure. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. The dove found a resting place. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. Finally, at this point, there Is dry ground what they may have thought that they would never see again and then verse 14 in the second month on the 27th day of the month the earth was dried we've got a slide for you that kind of gives the timetable of what's taken place if we can pull that up so this just gives us a chronology of the flood the first is the seven days of waiting and then the water continued 150 days and then the earth dried for, for 70 days. So we missed 150 days in there on our slide. We've, we've got another 150 days that were listed that we read in Scripture. So please forgive us on the slide. But the total then is 377 days. And you've got one year and 17 days that they were on the flood. What a long journey. What a long journey for them to be on the ark, to go through And God records this for us in detail. He gives us the timetable for us to ponder it and to be encouraged. Because when we do see the devastation of sin and experience God's correction and God's judgment, the work of restoration is slow, isn't it? It's long. And sometimes it's difficult. We see God speaking to Noah at the beginning of this process, come onto the boat, We see God speaking to Noah at the end of the process to get off of the boat. But we don't see God speaking to him while he's on the boat. Now, God may have done that, but it's not recorded for us. But sometimes you might be saying, I'm barely afloat. I'm barely afloat. I feel like I'm sinking. Everyone around me has been sinking as well. But God's doing a work of restoration. Things are drying out. There's going to be hope. There's going to be opportunity to get off of the boat and to start anew again. Verse 15. Then God spoke to Noah saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you. God says it's time to get out. They were going to stay on this boat until God says get out. I think I would as well. This is the only thing that you knew of salvation and now God's saying it's time to get out and there's gonna be life ahead the birds and the cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth a second time God's given this exhortation to be fruitful and to multiply there's a lot of work to be done there's a, a lot of procreation to take place it's just Noah and his family as well as these animals that are on the boat. So Noah went out, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with them. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. You can kind of picture them coming out of the ark, like, is it okay putting their feet upon dry ground? And like, oh, it's so good to be off this boat. It's so good to be on dry ground. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the Lord. Offered burnt offerings on the altar. This is huge. This is huge. The first thing that Noah does is he builds an altar to the Lord. I'm sure there was some conversation and some forethought what's the first thing you're going to do when you get off the boat? Noah says, I'm going to build an altar. And I'm going to worship God for him bringing salvation by grace into our lives. We do the math, and these creatures are very valuable, aren't they? There's only seven of every clean animal. And here, Noah uses some to sacrifice them in worship. If he was being practical or pragmatic that would win out and say, hey, we need to let these guys procreate for a while before you offer them in worship. But worship is important. Worship is more important than than anything else. And then we see God's response to the worship. And the Lord smelled a sweet, and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imaginations of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. So God smells it, and it's a soothing aroma to the Lord. Very different than the wickedness that was coming up before the Lord in the prior chapter. In this, I think that we see a picture of the gospel and salvation. What do I mean? Because the ark points to Christ. Jesus gives a covenant for salvation that all who come to him are saved. The flood points to how we're buried with Christ. The flood, all sin is buried in this flood. Sin is dealt with in this flood. And what's the truth of us, our sin? It's buried with Christ. Never to be resurrected again. These people would never be resurrected again. Our sin is never going to be resurrected again. It's salvation. Noah has experienced salvation we experience salvation through Christ, his death and burial. Then what is our response? Our response is to be the same as Noah. Because we've experienced salvation, is to not offer an animal, but to offer our very lives on God's altar. Paul puts it this way I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, because of God's mercy because of God's grace, because of salvation, then we respond to that grace, that favor, that salvation, and say, God, I wanna give my whole entire being to you. I'm gonna place myself upon your altar for worship. God's not desiring animals upon an altar anymore. He's desiring our lives. Now, the problem with us being a living sacrifice, unlike these animals, is we can climb off the altar, true? So there's times that we're very moved by salvation, thankful for grace, and we respond to that and say, God, I want my life to be a living sacrifice to you. But then there's other times we're selfish, we're focused on our own agenda, our own wants, we're not really thankful for salvation, worships the farthest thing from our hearts and minds. And that particular day, that moment, we're not a living sacrifice before the Lord. For Noah and his family to experience salvation It's only this eight people that are saved. Think of the kind of heartfelt worship that they would have in response to that. But I suggest to you this evening that we've experienced something greater than salvation from a flood. We've experienced salvation from eternal judgment. They got saved from this judgment here on this earth. We've been saved from eternal judgment to have everlasting life, to be the children of God. We're saved. And God directs us in several places that the source of our joy and rejoicing is in our salvation. The disciples got all excited that they saw demons cast out, and God was doing all this great work through their lives on their first missionary journey, their first short term mission trip. Jesus instructs them when they come back you need to be stoked that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice in your salvation. This other stuff is going to come and go. Sometimes you're going to see God using your life, but other times you won't. We see God instructing us that it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. When we rejoice in the salvation that he's given to us, that becomes strength to us. When I focus on my circumstances, I get bummed out really quickly, right? Oh man, this is so hard. This is so difficult. I I don't know if I can do this. But when I focus on the forgiveness that I've received, the salvation that I've received, (coughs) then I start to experience strength inside of the Lord. Doesn't heaven just continue to get better and better when we think about what it means to be saved and to be the child of God? So our last verse this evening. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So God's covenant with Noah is there's not going to be another worldwide flood, that they'll continue to be the seasons leading up to the ultimate time of judgment while the earth remains. Eventually there'll be that time when the earth doesn't remain. What do we learn from these two chapters? The first is God's judgment's real. God judged the earth with a worldwide flood. This earth is going to be burned up. There is such a thing as hell and eternal separation from God. Faith and obedience really matter. I hope we're stirred and encouraged by Noah in, in his life and his obedience. When everyone else was doing wickedness, he and his family decided to follow the Lord, to believe the Lord, and to trust the Lord. How is our faith built up? By hearing the word of God. And then the ark and the flood, they point to the gospel, the ark being Jesus, that as we're in Christ, there's provision so that we don't receive the judgment of God. We're buried in Christ, risen in newness of life, so we get to respond in worship. We get to respond in thanksgiving that our life belongs to Christ. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, it is uh, overwhelming for us to try to put ourselves in Noah's shoes, what it was like to witness your judgment, to experience your salvation. And we thank you for the opportunity to come to you, Jesus, to believe in you, to be in you, and that you have caused us to be new creations. The old man has passed away. So we choose to worship you right now. We want to present our lives afresh upon your altar, our minds, our eyes, our ears, our hearts. May the magnitude of salvation, may the magnitude of eternal life resound in our hearts this evening. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.